Coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen, we talk about Golden Horse nominations, a remake of Sunny in Japan, films being pulled from release in China, and our single film this week, Wang Jing's Chasing the Dragon. This is East Screen West Screen with Paul and Kevin. Where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida, and coming to us once again from his news desk inside of Donnie Yen's hairpiece is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. Hello, sir. It's been a while. It's uh, yeah, yeah. It's good to talk to you, man. After all that, yeah. we've been off uh, on a short hiatus, and we're kind of not back in full force yet. Um, but uh, we. You know, we're, we're going to be intermittent, I think, for a little bit longer, but um, we had an opportunity to get together to do a show because I got to get out and see Chasing the Dragon. Uh, it was showing uh, down in Miami, so thank you, AMC Theaters. And uh, just like Meow, I got to go down there, and it was a... I had the house all to myself, you know, uh, so <laughs> go, go figure. Uh, I guess the uh, local population of Chinese uh, film consumers were equally as excited about an Andy Lau Donnie Yen pairing as they were a Louis Koo and Giant Cat pairing. So, go figure. Was it in Cantonese or Mandarin? They had um, mixed screenings throughout the day. They had a Mandarin showing and Cantonese showings, and I went for the Cantonese one. So, Yeah, that's probably a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you got to hear Donnie's accent, yeah. Yeah, his attempt at an accent, um, and I think you're going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, but, uh, we're going to get into that a little bit later. Of course, we've got some news to get to. But how have things been with you? We've been off for a while. Yeah, no, um, things have been all right. I mean, busy. But, of course, you see that time to update my site again. But um, things are quieting down. But I, I do want to announce a little thing, uh, and that uh, which we're not covering in news, uh, just because there are so many festivals and awards and things like that. I just want to cover the main one, just Golden Horse. Um, that a film that I subtitled uh, "Looming Storm" is a Chinese uh, serial killer uh, drama uh, was picked up for a competition at the Tokyo International Film Festival. So my name will be on the screen and everything, and I'll be actually be going to Tokyo this year to watch the film on the big screen. Um, and it's my first uh, A-list festival competition film. So I'm very excited. Uh, and the film is, is probably, if not the best, one of the best films I ever had a chance to work on. So I, it's, it's been a very huge honor for me to work on that film, and I'm really excited for people to see it. Well, excellent. That's great news, and congratulations to you and, of course, the uh, filmmakers as well. Um, I'll look forward to taking a chance to see that when I get one. Um, speaking of Japan, uh, you were, you've been, you, of course, you were back in Japan, I think, right around the time we went on hiatus, and you uh, sent in a report from there where you talked about uh, some of the films you saw and, and some of the activities that were there. The one thing you didn't talk about, though, that uh, I guess we'd be remiss if we didn't mention because we are such fanatics, is the Terrence House. Uh, season four of Terrence House Aloha State has returned to Netflix, um, so American fans can finally uh, get their reality TV fix if you're following along with that show. Did you watch the entire series while you were there? No, I only had time to watch because I had so much fun looking through Netflix Japan while I was there because there's so much more, you know, they have a lot of um, Japanese films, which were all unsubtitled, by the way. And plus the, the internet connection in my hotel was kind of iffy. So I only had time to watch about five episodes. 
um, but actually ripped through the rest of the series, the the seven episodes that I didn't watch in like a week, in like five days, because mm. I was just so excited. And, and, and this after I read the spoilers, because I was waiting so long to see what would happen. So I already read the spoilers, and I was just looking forward to seeing what happens. And, you know, watching the show is always much better than just reading the spoilers. So, yeah, I just ripped through the rest of it in seven days. Have you have you finished uh, the season No, yet? we've been taking it slow. We've been taking it slow. I think we're three or four episodes in so far, so. Um, we're trying to appreciate the enjoyment because you know you run through the episodes and then it's like uh, uh, you you're know. empty, yeah. <laughs> trying to take it like an episode every couple days so it uh, lasts a little bit longer. And well, did you did you get to the uh, infamous banana scene yet in yes, part four? Yes, yeah. We, 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 <laughs> the, the so very obvious uh, <laughs> flirting that's going on between those two and. So, Again, it it does kind of call into question, you know, aspects of how how the sausage is made, as it were. Um, <laughs> you know, with, with you know these kids, and you know how much are they really playing for the camera? You know, or how often do they lose sight of the fact they're on camera? I got right. I, I I mean, I would think like going back to Japan with the first series, maybe even the second series. You know maybe there was a tendency to forget they were on camera. But now I got to think, especially with what ended up in um, Boys and Girls in the City, that whole big brouhaha at the end, you know, with the kids kind of playing the show and stuff. Um, I, I got to think these guys kind of know what they're doing sometimes. I don't know. Oh, yeah. No, of course. Um, especially the gu- say- guilty samurai because he drives me and my wife up the wall. Well, I have to say... Taishi, actually, from one of the sort of weirder characters, he's in part four, he's really redeemed himself into sort of the hero of the story. Um, I didn't care for him in the first sort of three parts, especially when, when the, the the commentators were mocking him about how he cries too much and about his whole dating thing and his, you know. But I'd say he really redeems himself in part and sort of becomes a hero of part four because he embraces the whole guilty samurai. He embraces how to make fun of his whole love to for dying for thing. And he has a sense of humor about himself. You know, it's not you know he's not mad that and he's aware that people are sort of mocking him, but he plays into it so well and, and he totally accept, accepts the image. Uh, and and he's sort of become one of my favorite characters in this season. Yeah, yeah. Um well we won't continue on too much on on our tangent. We'll save more thoughts for future episodes. Um, but if you're not watching Terrence House and you're interested in Asian pop culture at all, you probably should. So it's easy to get to if you have Netflix. Get out and give it a try. All right. That's enough about that. Uh, let's do as we always do and head over to our news section with this week's news. Here at the news desk, a couple of, like I said, there were a lot of sort of festival announcements and 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 award nominations and things like that so but we're going to going to focus on the main one which is golden horse because it is the biggest uh film awards um in the greater china speak uh greater china region and that's the one where we'll most likely see films that we've heard of so i'm gonna stick to that one um but yeah this year's uh nominations were announced on october 1st uh in taipei of course and uh, Taiwan Cinema making a huge comeback this year with a lot of nominations. Um, the most nom- most nominated film was The Great Buddha Plus, uh, a black and white sort of dark comedy from director Huan Xin Yao. That film took 10 nominations, including Best Film, Best New Director, because it's a first-time director. So instead of Best Director, he got Best New Director. Uh, Leon Daibat, Best Supporting Actor and Best Adapted Screenplay, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the film was the opening film of this year's Taipei Film Festival. So, uh, and of course, the top winner of the Taipei Film Awards at the Taipei Film Festival. So it's a big, big win for that festival, and of course for Taipei Cinema, um, or Taiwan Cinema rather. Uh, in fact, the other two uh, lead sort of most uh, sort of leading films are also so Taiwan productions or made by Taiwanese filmmakers. Um, with seven nominations is Yang Yang Ches The Bold, The Corrupt, and The Beautiful, which is another sort of dark comedy um, set in a different period, very different, and more about the rich uh, and um, and apparently under under the the table corruption things like that. Uh, the film stars Kara Wai. Uh, Yang Ya Che, if you don't know him, he directed a film called BFGF, which stars Guilin May, Joseph Chang, 
and Ridian Vong, um, which also I think uh, earned, I think earned Gui, Gui. Sorry, we we call her a, a circle of friends called Gui, so I just like to go back to that nickname. But yeah, Guilin May I think won the Best Actress award for that film. But anyway, his latest film uh, got seven nominations, uh, including Best Film, Best Director, Kara Wai, Best Actress. Um, Best screenplay and uh, best supporting actress for this young actress called Vicky Chan. Um, she's a 14-year-old actress who was born in Taiwan. I think mostly does films in China. Um, here, this Taiwan production earned her a best supporting actress uh, nomination, and she also has a best actress nomination for a mainland Chinese film called Angels Wear White, uh, which was in competition at this year's um, Venice Film Festival, uh, and that film was also nominated for best film. Uh, also with seven nominations is Sylvia Chang's Love Education. Uh, Sylvia Chang, as we know, uh, is a Taiwanese filmmaker, but this is her first fully, I think, fully mainland China-funded production, so it's counted as a mainland Chinese film. Uh, even in Taiwan, where she had to go through the, the yearly lottery to get the film actually theatrically released in Taiwan, um, and she managed to get a get get one of the top ten slots that are usually for the mainland Chinese film. So that film also got seven nominations: best film, best director, and best actress. Which means Sylvia Chang uh, earned double nominations this year and two slots. And um, male star um, is actually director Tan Juan Juan, who directed. Um, I think her his last film was The Warrior and the Wolf. So he hasn't directed in a while, but uh, I think this is the first time as a starring as a, as, a, as a lead actor, and he got a Best acting a best Actor nomination. That film was coming out on November 17th in Taiwan and October 27th in China, and it's also the closing film of this year's Busan Film Festival. So there's plenty of chances to see that film uh, if you're in, in the, the region. Um, also seven nominations. See You Tomorrow, the Wong Kar Wai, Zhang Jia Jia film. Um, that film did not get a best uh, film or director nomination, but it did get Takeshi Kaneshiro his very first acting nomination at the Golden Horse Awards. Imagine, I mean, 28 years and he never had an act, act, uh, acting nomination at the Golden Horse. And for some weird reason, his first acting nomination would come with this film. And also weird is that he would be listed as a best actor because in that film, he was very clearly sort of a supporting actor to Tong Li Lun Shiwai, but the, the committee decided to give him a Best Actor nomination instead, um, which is a bit odd, I found. Um, also worth noting, uh, Have a Nice Day, the controversial Chinese animated film, uh, which was pulled from a NSC film festival in France earlier because I think of some censorship issue or whatever. Um, that film is, the, is nominated for Best Animated Feature and is also now the first animated film to be nominated for Best Screenplay at the Golden Horse Awards. Uh, so it got a Best Original Screenplay nomination. Um, and yeah, uh, unfortunately, Hong Kong Cinema, which did have some uh, a lot of success last year with uh, Trevisa and Mad World, really fell behind this year. Um, only Our Time Will Come, the Anhui film, got really got nominated in the major categories. It received five nominations, including uh, Anhui, uh, her seventh nomination for Best Director, uh, Tony Leung Ka Fai for Best Supporting Actor, which is also weird because it's only in the film for about like 10 minutes. And Dini Yip, of course, for Best Supporting Actress. Um, the other Hong Kong films all got really, you know, sort of technical nominations. For example, Sammo Hung was nominated for Paradox. Um, and Wu Kong, the Derek Kwok film, was nominated for a few technical awards. But otherwise, Hong Kong films are mostly left out this year, which is a bit sad. And, of course, says a lot about the quality of Hong Kong films in the past year. Um, so wait, you're telling um, you're, you're telling me that Meow didn't get any awards? Meow did not get any nominations. Uh, uh, only if Golden Horse has has uh, has an award called Worst Film Ever, <laughs> then Meow will probably get nominated. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, not even the the CGI for the giant cat got a nomination, which I thought okay, if Meow was to nominate be nominated. For any Golden Horse Award, it would have been in the um, the uh, the technical category, but no, I I, I think the uh, the committee was either they they accepted the film and didn't watch it, which I think is a wiser choice, or they you know common sense actually prevailed and they didn't give it any nomination. So <laughs> who knew? Um, but anyway, the um, the the actual. Um, Award ceremony. Oh, also worth noting is that Mason Lee, the son of director Ang Lee, 
all earned his first acting nomination here this year with a Best Supporting Actor nomination for Who Killed K- uh, Cock Robin, the uh, Taiwan thriller. That film got five nominations. Um, and yeah, so the award uh, will be held in Taipei on November 25th. And of course, uh, like every year, uh, I will be doing a live blog of the awards, and it will be on AsiaInCinema.com this year. All right. Some things to look forward to, including Kevin's live blog of the event and some films that uh, you can look forward to if they're not coming to a festival near you, perhaps uh, on home video sometime soon. Uh, second piece of news, um, remake news. Um, Sunny, uh, the hit Korean film, uh, this is not the one about... There are two Sunnies in Korea, but this one is a bigger hit and the more popular one, the one about um, a gang of uh, uh, young teen delinquents getting back together in the middle age. Uh, it's getting a remake in Japan. Um I, it's not a surprise. The film, I think, was actually remake in Hong Kong as a TV series that was produced by Eric Zhang. Um, so, so it's not a surprise that 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 uh, Japan is now taking on the remake, except it will be remade as a film. It will be directed by Hitoshi One, who did uh, the adaptation of Bakuman, uh, which I thought was very good. And he also recently did a uh, drama scoop about um, paparazzis in uh, in Japan. Um, and I thought he's a very, I think he's a very solid commercial director. So he will be writing and directing the film. Um, Ryoko Shinohara was mostly a TV star, uh, but was also in uh, uh, Miki Kotani's um, Sweet Dreams. She's starring as the older version as the, of the main character. And um, Zuzu Hirose, who you might have seen in uh, Koreeda's, uh, Hirokazu Koreeda's Our Little Sister and The Third Murder, she will be playing the younger version of, of the main character. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I look forward to it. I mean, the thing is, yeah, Japan doesn't really have a good track record for remakes, but I like Hitoshi Ones' um, uh, works, and I think that he has a very good grasp of pop culture. Uh, so and this film does does have a lot of nostalgic pop culture stuff. So while the original film uh, flashback to the mid '80s, which was a very tumultuous era, the military dictatorship, and of course the pop culture at the time as well, this film will be mostly about the early '90s and mid '90s in Japan. Um, so it won't be dealing as with serious sort of social issues as the film sort of that the original sort of slightly hinted on. But, um, yeah, the Japanese remake should be a lot of fun, and uh, I look greatly forward to it. Our final bit of news, um, some films being pulled from uh, various places, right? Yeah, uh, ch- uh, if you've been following my blog, uh, Asia and Cinema, or my website, asiancinema.com, in the last couple of weeks, you see that I've been reporting that some films were pulled from release in China at very last minute. Um for example, The Liquidator, which was the, um, a serial killer thriller from Edgo, um, did not obtain a, um, a release permit in time. So I think it was pulled. It was postponed indefinitely about 10 days ahead of its planned release. Um, full disclosure, I did the subtitles for that film, but I, of course, I'm not involved in any of the sort of creative decisions or, or promotional decision or release decision of the film. I just did the subtitles. So, um, I, I am I am as in the dark about it as everyone else, um, but yeah, um, the film that that film was pulled ten days ahead, and then um, that was supposed to be released for the golden uh, sort of the National Day Golden Week holiday in China, which is eight days this year, and of course it's intensely competitive this year already, um, even without the big releases. Um, but yeah, so so that film got pulled about ten days ahead of its release on the 29th, um, and then. A few days later, Feng Xiaogang's new film *Youth*, which had already premiered in Toronto, um, was also pulled from release at the very last minute. Um, and Feng Xiaogang even had to sort of go on the Weibo and and apologize, and he was very cryptic about what happened. But of course, he mentioned negotiations and film bureau and uh, relevant parties. So it means that it was a very much a decision that was not taken lightly and because it was a huge release, and actually The Liquidator and The Youth were two of the more anticipated films of this National Day holiday. Um, and so no one, no one has any official reason why it was pulled, of course, because Chinese you know, Chinese authorities would never tell you that kind of thing. But that film was um, <clears throat> pulled in the very last minute. Um, again, this actually is a repeat of what happened last year with I Am Not Madame Bovary, 
which was also um, pulled from its National Day release uh, just before it happened, and it was eventually edited, re-edited, and it was released in China, uh, I think, a month and a half uh, later. Um, so that might happen to Youth. Youth actually is um, a film about um, a military art troupe uh, during the 70s, so it takes place during the Cultural Revolution, and it covers the Sino-Vietnamese War, which was a, a very controversial topic still today in China. Um, and from what I've heard, the film also covers um, sort of a mistreatment of veterans, uh, of PLA veterans, um, so that could be a touchy. The Cultural Revolution could be touchy, who knows. Um, uh, and then, just last week, a third film called Wrath of Silence, which um, is the follow-up of a film called Coffin and Mountain uh, by a uh, director named Shinya Kun, a young director. Um, it was anticipated enough among amongst the film buffs because Coffin and the Mountain was very, um, very popular in the fest circuit, and it got a lot of good reviews in China as well. Um, and it was pulled from release uh, just, again, a week before... Uh, it was set to release. I think it's set for release on the 13th of October, and it was pulled about about two weeks before that, um, and just before its international premiere at the London Film Festival. Even though the London Film Festival screenings are still happening, <clears throat> so it seems, and it already actually had its world premiere in July at the first film festival in um, on, um, I forgot where. It's somewhere anyway. The chat the first film festival in China already premiered a film. So that's the thing. It might, all three of these films might have been pulled because of other decisions. Uh, it could be politics. It could be, it could be the competition. I mean, even with the liquidator and youth, that means seven huge commercial release. We're going to duke it out at the national day holiday. I mean, at, the, at this moment we have five films uh, going against each other, and the competition is already very intense. So imagine if Feng Xiaogang, the liqu- liquidator, has stayed in that competition, um, how messy things would have been. So, uh, but actually, Edgo, in their first announcement on Weibo, actually made it clear that it, they couldn't obtain a release permit for whatever reason. Uh, and then it was, and then of course they revised that statement later, taking out the part about. The, the, the release permit. So they made it more vague, I think, just for politically correct reason. And just like Feng Xiaogang, he had to sort of be vague about why the film was pulled. Um, and it does touch on very sensitive topics. And the new the 19th Party Congress is coming up uh, later this month. So things are even more sensitive these days because um, a shuffle um, is expected on the, the, with the top member uh, membership of the party. Um, and that could actually have far-reaching effects in the cultural sector and how how conservative the uh, film the authorities are going to be with censoring films and internet content and all that other stuff um so it's a very touchy time in china right now and of course no one's going to say on the record that this has anything to do with whether these films are pulled but it does raise some eyebrows Hmm, interesting um i was just thinking perhaps this is a carryover two of the wujing effect you know uh maybe they're with, with with the success of such a quote unquote positive China film, maybe they're a bit hesitant to put things that might be deemed a little bit more controversial into the circuit around you know the the big holiday, the Golden Week, and whatnot. Right. I I was talking to a friend in China about this, and and of course they're wondering why Liquidator might have been taken out. And I've seen the film, so I sort of I mentioned a couple of themes that the film touches on. I said, oh, it might have been because of this, and they're like. Well, exactly. See, now they just find any reason to pull a film. They they could just find anything, they deem anything as sensitive and pull it. So that's how sensitive things are in China. Anything that's that could even be perceived as controversial or sensitive could be pulled. And it doesn't have to be about politics. It could be about social issues. It could be about whatever uh, economic issues, anything like that. Uh, it just seems like uh, everyone is is just sort of treading and just tiptoeing. Um, trying hoping and praying that their film gets released in china these days speaking of wujing did did you guys in the group get out to see um uh wolf warriors 2 i think it finally hit in hong kong right it did yeah a number of us did see it yeah yeah any any thoughts on it honestly i i i thought it you could have stopped watching the film before 10 minutes before it actually ended 
So you you could skip the two most, of course, the two sort of more contentious scene about the, the nationalism, and the film would have been just fine ended mm-hmm. there. Like, but of course those felt like there were rumors that they were added not because of Wu Jing but because someone wanted it there. But who knows? Um, and I thought the rest of it just seemed like a '90s Jerry Bruckheimer, Dom Simpson production. Like it could have been Nicolas Cage, right. you know. <laughs> and, and and you know, if you just take it as that, it's really not worth taking seriously. And I didn't think it was that good, even as a as an action film. It's it had too much agenda, you know. what I mean, it had too many agendas. Um, that's the thing about the those Jerry Bruckheimer, those those direct, you know, those um big commercial '90s film is that. That they never let the agenda really get in the way. Is that yeah, they sort of hint at it, or they, you know, there's the whole America soft power thing, but it was never done as, 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 what's the word, ugly as the way that Wolf Warrior does it. The thing, that's the thing. I'm not looking for subtlety, but the thing is, I don't like to be preached about or preached to, or I don't like to be told. Uh, about how one con- nationalism, one country is great, blah blah, and and the thing is, all the stuff was so obvious that that it kept distracting me from the actual story, which there wasn't a lot of it really. But um, yeah, it's really a, the the Wu Jing show, and the only thing that could over overpower the Wu Jing and the Wu Jing show is the Chinese flag, and and that's what it is. Um, so I didn't think it was that great, but you know, it's a it's a it's a, it's a you know trashy action flick. It's okay. All right, let us take a short musical break, and we'll be back with this week's review of Chasing the Dragon. And welcome back. So our singular review for this week, uh, the Hong Kong film from director Wong Jing and a couple others, Chasing the Dragon. Uh, The story is the tale of Crippled Ho and his rise to power in the Hong Kong underworld, along with his best bud, Lee Rock. What? Um... All right, I'm going to throw the ball over to Kevin because he normally handles these screen reviews um, off the bat. So why break with tradition? Uh, Kevin, take us through this film. Yeah, this is the latest film from Wang Jing. Um, but of course, we know that everyone who knows the Hong Kong film industry knows that Wang Jing doesn't actually direct his movie. So when he's trying to do something serious, he has to bring on ringers. Uh, so his typical, you know, frequent collaborator Armand Chen is here, um, listed as a uh, like associate director or something. But the main other directorial force here is Jason Kwan, the cinematographer who made his directorial debut earlier this year with Nail Clipper Romance, um, and that film I did not like. Um, but uh, yeah, in brief, it's a very short version of the story. Is that this is the tale of a uh, humble. Uh, immigrant from Chou Chow named um, uh, Msek Ho, played by uh, Donnie Yen. And uh, by chance, he becomes uh, a, a fighter for triads. And of course, by chance, he also um, meets the acquaintance of a cop named Lee Rock, played by uh, uh, Andy Lau. And Andy La- oh, Lee Rock, sorry, I keep saying Andy Lau because essentially playing himself in the film. But Andy Lau, or Lee Rock, um, seeing uh, how great a fighter Ho is, uh, decides to sort of keep him on his friends list. Um, so as Ho continues his rise in power, he has he finds a friend in Lee Rock and um, and sort of about their the film's about their parallel rise in power. But of course, there is the ultimate bad guy, which is corrupted British cops. So um, yeah, and of course the colonial government, I guess. I don't know, whatever. Uh, so the film <clears throat> Is Wong Jing's attempt at sort of this big crime epic, it really touches on the same territory as Dealey Healer, which we talked about, I, I think, um, a few months ago. Uh, trivia, I was watching Blade Runner 2049 today, and director Lawrence Lau is sitting in the same row as me. Although I didn't get to talk to him, I didn't get to say hi, because, you know, I don't actually know him. But um, anyway... Yeah, uh, uh, I, it covers similar territories because uh, a cripple hose, um, 
essentially his his turf was it became Kowloon Wall City. So a lot of the film takes place uh, in the Kowloon Wall cities about the drug trade there. And if, in fact, Peter Chan, who was the the main um, the the character the inspir- the inspiration for Dealer Healer, was listed as a technical advisor on this film. Yeah, not that not director Peter Chan, but the former drug dealer turned uh, drug reformer Peter Chan. Uh, uh, and I'll, I'll leave Paul because I see Paul has a lot of trivia about sort of the former versions of these character and and what and the films that cover these characters. So I'll, le- I'll leave him to it. But um, it, to me, essentially, it, re- it revisits really the same old crime movie tropes. If you see one film about a drug lord to rise to power, you've pretty much seen this film. Um, the only thing sort of special is his friendship with this cop who is also actually corrupted. Remember, I mean, Lee Rock is was um, <clears throat> notorious. He was. I think his nickname was like the five, five hundred million detective or something, because that's how much money he was earning by by you know being corrupted, um, and yet these guys are the heroes of this film, which is very odd. Um, I don't think the film really covers any new ground or say anything groundbreaking about the genre. Even the whole friendship between criminal and cop thing, I think that was covered slightly better in Dealer Healer. You, you had that one, you had um, <clears throat> Lao Cheng Wan and uh, Louis Ku. Who are you know we've seen enough as buddies, so that that friendship really carry. I mean that partnership really carry into dealer healer, and I think that relationship um, was a bit more convincing than the way it was covered here. But of course here it's Donnie Yen, Andy Lau, so the star power is a bit bigger. Um, but like I said, it doesn't really cover anything in the genre. So uh, at 128 minutes of really the same old sort of drug kingpin rise to power thing with a bit more action than usual really bored me to no end uh, i thought it, it i was just waiting for it to end the film was really too long and of course Wanjing has no sense of pacing when he tells a story so it just he's just piling on with events after events after events with you know no real pacing whatsoever um i mean it's fine for what it is um, but it it was really tiring to watch, especially if you have watched enough crime films or enough sort of these type of crime films. Um, so in the end, it's really just a vanity project for Donnie Yen and Andy Lau, who are both producers of the film, and of course Wong Jing, who is clearly trying um, his hand at a sort of more serious film. So sort of like the last tycoon, right? He was trying for awards um, <clears throat> or at least closer to awards glory. Um and it's a historical revisionist view for China money. Um, I find it really funny because you have a drug kingpin and a corrupted detective, and yet the worst people in the film are British. The British, like, okay, yeah, they were bad. Yeah, of course. I mean, you have Peter Gober and and of course, uh, the other guy named Hunt. Um, and the film is called Hunter, but it's based on a real guy named Hunt. Uh, and he, they were of course corrupted. And you know, I wouldn't hesitate to say that. Of course, British treated hong kong as bad as a colonial or whatever but it's just really weird that you know it's, it's relatives right for some reason you have a, a a guy who sold millions and millions of dollars of drugs and a, and a and a cop who was you know corrupted and and took a lot of bribes and things like that and yet somehow the moral scale whatever fell on the british bad guys it was just really weird but which is of course i think was required because you have to say that colonial government was the worst time in Hong Kong history, which was not, by the way. The film opens with the 1960s and 70s were the darkest time in Hong Kong history. Uh, well, the 70s. I think it says the 70s was the Hong Kong's darkest time in Hong Kong history. But I'm like, what about the riots of 1967 when people were setting off grenades? Left, And then these were left-wingers, you know, who supported the Communist Party. Huh, okay. Um, so... It was a very weird, if you know anything about Hong Kong history, it's a very weird film to watch because it twists history in such ways to get, you know, released in China. Um, it doesn't even get the history of Kowloon Wall City right. Um, friend of the show, Tim Youngs, we were watching the film and afterwards he's like, you know, the Kowloon, in the film they say the Kowloon Wall City was abandoned by the British, which was why it was this lawless land because the British gave up on it and the cops couldn't enforce the law in there. Uh actually the british the colonial police couldn't enforce the law in kowloon wall city because it would actually kowloon wall city belonged to china during the colonial period um in some weird um 
terms, the Kowloon Wall City itself is actually Chinese territory, which is why the British police didn't have jurisdiction, which was why it became such a mess. But of course, that did not get covered in the film. Um, and there's one scene in the film where uh, uh, Donnie... So they, they have this whole big operation set up in, in the Kowloon Wall City, and people could walk up, and they do drugs in the alleyway or whatever. There's a scene where this, this uh, nerd... A uh, young nerd walks up and tries to buy drugs, and Donnie, at his moral outrage, goes and tells the kids, "What the hell are you doing? Like, don't buy drugs, do drugs. You can't do drugs. How dare you do drugs? Don't. If you come back and do drugs, I'm gonna kill you. Look at these guys. These guys are trash." It's like <laughs> when it's, it's almost like saying like Uniqlo kicking me out because I have no sense of fashion, so that I should go shop somewhere Giordano or something, which is really weird. It's like Uniqlo was so should how close to anyone right just like a drug kingpin would sell drugs to anyone you know have no sort of hesitation so the fact that they have to make donnie a sort of more heroic character by having him like going around telling kids don't not do drugs it's like it's just really hilariously absurd but i can see the chinese audiences might actually buy this whole film as a true story because what would they know about 70s hong kong history so they buy whatever the film sells them i mean tells them that's a true story based on true stories based on true characters and it has a faint version of the truth and and it's it's quite shameless in how Wong jing sort of just twists the truth um to to serve an audience but of course you know it's China. I mean, they're used to that kind of stuff, right? Um, Donnie was fine in the film. Uh, he's clearly trying to act here, but he has this thick... Not thick, but he has this... Well, his Chu Chow accent sort of comes and goes. <laughs> like, the first half of the film is quite thick, and then it just sort of fades away at, at points. I mean, the whole film was done on ADR, so I don't think any of the film, any of the, the dialogue was shot on set. So he was just sort of drifting in and out the accent in the studio. And his Chiu Chow accent really kept reminding me of the principal in the Mado movies. So I thought that Anthony Wong might have done a better job trying to do that Chiu Chow accent. Um, like I said, it's a vanity project, so Donnie was really just trying to act. And there's a scene where he um, was get, uh, s- selling some grudges uh, in a very Reservoir Dogs kind of way. And then he went off and he spoke the essentially a very foul language in Chiu Chow dialect because i speak a little bit of chuchao dialect i'm chuchao so and he did that and that was actually the unintentioned laugh of the film just because i know that phrase and he just keeps repeating it <laughs> only because chuchao dialect won't get him a category free in hong kong so he gets to keep saying it and it was really um the overacting moment of the film andy as always andy lao plays andy lao because you know he doesn't really do anything else nowadays he just sort of the same charming Andy, and it's weird seeing him play the same role that he played. How how long ago was Lee Rock? Was it 20, twenty years ago? Twenty five years ago? Yeah, twenty six years ago. And that he's essentially the oldest, the oldest twenty year old ever captured on film. I think at the beginning of the film he was like early thirties, right, or late twenties or something. So it was like the oldest early thirties detective ever. I think in Hong Kong cinema history. Um, but he does sort of get to stretch his acting chops in the second half of the film when things get a bit more serious. But there's no real challenge for him here. Um, it's not like he had a very you know, complicated character to play. And the, the biggest challenge for him really was to swallow Wan Jing's ridiculous scripts, uh, script and, and the, the contrivances, I think. Um, <clears throat> the plot line here is pretty ridiculous, as most Wan Jing movies are. But the problem is he's trying to do a serious film. He's trying to do a serious drama. So all the absurd plot twists get even worse here. There's a thing, there's a whole plot twist about Moe's, you know, planting people and and undercover. And it just got to a point where it feel like it feels like it was written by um it was like a role play by by, you know, primary school students trying to make a triad movie. You know, like I planted a mole. Well, I knew you had a mole. I just knew all along, but I let you plant the mole. Ha 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 ha. Like, <laughs> this is really juvenile. Um, and the cruelty of the film. I mean, there are some torture stuff, and there's some, of course, the usual wanting, embarrassing character stuff here. There's one scene involving urine. Just even seems more misfitting here. Um, it, it feels sensational and, like I said, quite cruel. Um, and needlessly so, so it it it, it felt even worse here. Um, I thought Ken Chen, who plays um, 
Lee Rock's deputy in the film. I thought he was the best thing in the film because he was the most down to earth uh, performance here. I thought I would like to see a film about his character, you know, being the deputy of these these corrupted detectives and uh, try to ride out this thing as a beta instead of a of a of a loud, out loud sort of alpha character uh, in this type of you know era. I thought that could be a more interesting film, but you know, we're not gonna leave Wong Jing to do that. Honestly, I like the other Wong Jing recent Wong Jing production, Color of the Game, better. I think uh, than Chasing the Dragon. Um, I think the most inspired thing about Chasing the Dragon is actually the title of the film, which is a slang for I think doing crack at the time. Uh, I think that was the most inspiring inspired part of the film. Everything else is kind of ridiculous. I sort of like Color of the Game more. Even though it's equally ridiculous, but it's really aware of what it is. It's um, sort of a B-level triad um, movie, but the plot is clearer. The plot is a lot more engaging, and some of the scenes are a bit more interesting. Um, and I thought that was actually the more solid one Jake production to, to, to appear in recent years. Um, but I don't think it's a great film, but you know, at least I like that a bit more, relatively. Um, and I know some people have talked about sort of like, oh, it's Wong Jing, who, you know, don't, why should we expect anything from Wong Jing? We should just sort of appreciate for what it is. But no, I don't think it's right to expect less of any filmmaker because they're not going to charge me less money to watch a Wong Jing movie, aren't they? I'm paying the same ticket, right? So shouldn't I expect every filmmaker to do their best on every film? So no, I would never expect less of Wong Jing. Wong Jing consistently aims lower than, than other filmmakers in Hong Kong. And the fact that he misses the mark it's even worse because if you aim low and you still miss, I think to me that's the spell's laziness, and I think that makes watching even more guilty of of of, uh, of cinema crimes, whatever you call it. Um, he is aiming higher here, but I thought it was just much as a miss for me. Um, so yeah, that's it. Chasing the dragon, you know, it can't be disappointing because you know it's like this one Jing. What can you do? Um, but still, I I just didn't think it was very good. All right, well. I have a slightly different take on all of this, but I do think it's interesting, um, as Kevin pointed out, because you basically have three directors assigned here, um, but the direction and the script really falls back to Wong Jing and Jason Kwan, and I wonder, is this more a Jason Kwan film than a Wong Jing film? Um, and it's hard for me to say because I haven't seen Nail Clipper Romance yet, right? Um so based on that, Kevin, what would you say? Would you say this still feels very much like Wong Jing or he's just kind of sitting back looking at a few dailies and saying, okay, do you think this is, you know, based on what you see in terms of the tone and the visuals and the pacing, is it really Wong Jing or are we more in Jason Kwan's camp? Well, Jason Kwan is, is a cinematographer, so clearly he was spot on to sort of the more stylized stuff, of course, the technical aspect of the film um Wang Jing everyone knows that Wang Jing doesn't direct his film Wang Jing I, I doubt that Wang Jing even writes his own scripts I mean the film actually credits two other two other writers so I think that I don't think Wang Jing even writes his own scripts uh Wang Jing is known that known that he uh when he's on set he reads the uh the horse racing you know, the, the page the, about the horse race like about about horse racing because that's what he spends most of his time doing on set. That's <laughs> um, quite famous for it. So that's why the films had, that film has three directors credited because I think Jason Kwan handled technical stuff while Amin Chen also was needed to sort of handle the more day-to-day director on the set stuff while I guess Wang Jing might have led the project creatively. Um, but he really left the sort of dirty work, the directing part, the actual technical directing part to his two collaborators here, I think. I went into this film kind of excited because I was like, wait, Andy Lau's, you know, going back to play Lee Rock again? Okay, that could be interesting. Um, and it's kind of like an okay, um, what? Uh, when, once the film starts. It's a mashup of 90s movies um, and, and really one more recent film that, or a couple more recent films that come to mind. I mean, if you take Lee Rock 1 and 2, you take To Be Number 1, um, all of which came out in, I think, 91. You take Ip Man 2, and you take Ip Man Final Fight, right? And you just throw them into a mixing bowl and mix them up, and out comes this movie. There are elements throughout um, that are really pulled um, from from all of these films. So 
if you've seen all those films, you're not really seeing anything new here. So I think Kevin's assessment of that is really correct. The only really new thing you get here is Donnie Yen kind of playing a triad guy, which I think is, is fairly new for him, right? I mean, he's played villains before, but I think this is really his first leading role in the triad genre. So you have a triad actioner here based on historic characters, okay? So Lee Rock is a real person, um, Cripple Ho, real person. These characters have been covered before. Andy reprising his role here as Lee Rock, um, Donnie taking on the mantle of, of Cripple Ho, and then really rearranging the story so these two have a somewhat closer relationship. Now, I don't really have a lot to go on other than what some of the stuff I've read online in terms of, you know, um, these guys and, and what they did. Um, there's no real indication of how well they knew each other like we get to see um, in any of these film versions. Uh, Cripple Ho was played by Ray Lui back in 1991 in the film To Be Number One. And he was played by a different uh, uh, um, gangster in the Lee Rock films, or a different actor, uh, Victor Han Kwan, um, played the Cripple Ho role in Lee Rock 1 and 2. And where it gets confusing is because a lot of these guys shift around, including into this film. So Victor Han Kwan played a different gangster in To Be Number 1. So if you watch these films kind of all together, you may get a little bit mixed up if you're not familiar with the actors and the people. People going into this as a Donnie film thinking, oh, I'm going to watch Donnie fight and and do the kind of stuff he normally does. This is not it, man. Donnie's fighting style here is very sloppy, um, erratic, but that is all by design, um, not due to poor choreography or anything. He's just playing kind of a street-level guy who can fight well in a somewhat bad wig. You also have uh, Lee Rock here. Uh, again, played by Andy, returning to the role after 26 years. Um, his take on the character is a bit different this time out. As Kevin says, he's basically doing his smiling, charming Andy Lau. If you go back and watch the Lee Rock films, that's the Lee Rock we get in the first film when he's young. Then in the second film when he's an old man and he's got some aging makeup on and some gray in his hair, he's kind of doing a little bit of a you know, uh, the godfather mobster kind of a, a take on the older Lee Rock character. But uh, nonetheless, it's it's interesting because in the 91 films, he was too young to really play the role fully. And now, as Kevin said, he's kind of too old to play, you know, the, the role fully. Um, but it's still an interesting take uh, to see him brought back into the role. Lee Rock was also portrayed by Kenneth Zhang, I think, in the To Be Number One film, and he also played, reprised the role of Lee Rock in one of the TVB dramas, I think, um, called The Greed of Man. So um, he's had a couple shots as the role as well. Um, the other kind of central character here is a character called Nan Tong, who was Lee Rock's rival and... Um, played really iconically by Paul Chun, Paul Chun Pui in the 91 films, uh, the two Lee Rock films, and also a spin-off film um, called Arrest the Restless. And here it's played by Kent Tong, who's fine. Um, Paul Chun's still around. Perhaps there was a bit, you know, he, he just didn't want to do the role again, or, you know, it was a bit too big for the kind of role he wanted to do. But I think it would have been nice to, if they could have, brought him back um, to, to, to fill out the role. Ken Tong does a fine job, though. Um, we have classic cameos, too, by Michael Chan as, uh, I think, his Crab King, um, one of the drug lords. And uh, he's older, but he's still doing fine, and he played the role back in the, the Lee, Rock, Lee Rock films. Uh, I did men mention Kenneth Tsang. Uh, he has a cameo here. He's playing Lee Rock's father-in-law. Um, Kent Cheng, uh, He's Lee Rock's assistant, and I guess he's a police officer. But his role here is a bit more of a riff uh, or akin to the Imantat role of Lardo, um, kind of in the first film. And that, But then Donnie kind of fills that role, too, as sort of the criminal who ends up helping kind of Lee Rock. So they kind of split that off between both Ken Cheng and um, Donnie Yen. Um, 
But Ken Chang is really, I mean, just being Ken Chang, he's more of a riff on his old police inspector roles. And so it's great to see him on screen, um, especially in his scenes with uh, Andy Lau. They, they have good chemistry together. But Ken did play a pretty nasty gangster um, back in to be number one, too. So, again, we got some of the old guys, the old guard coming around and, and uh, filling out these roles. So just for that alone, there's a nostalgic aspect that, I found somewhat fulfilling, um, even though it's not an outstanding film um, by the old standards. We have quite a few new cameos here, um, from, from cameos from newer actors and actresses. Uh, Nikki Chow shows up, Philip M shows up, uh, Terrence Yin, Lawrence Cho, um, a couple others to where it's almost, it kind of felt a little bit like a Chinese New Year film at times because there's so many celebrity cameos. But where things get a little bit disjointed, the visual effects are okay. They do some green screening in places to try and get back to this sensibility of old Hong Kong from the 60s and 70s. Um, there's a couple sequences that I think are a bit heavy-handed, don't look very good, and are really not needed. Um, they, they, you know, they, they could have. There's a dream sequence. There's a sequence where a character dies, and it's really just too much CGness that is not necessary. They could have easily told those plot points or just pulled them out and it wouldn't have had um, an impact on the story without the use of CG. There are some classic narrative moments from the older films that are retold here. Um, some are reimagined, so how Ho gets his limp is very different from how they portray it in To Be Number One. Um, his meeting and relationship with Lee Rock here is very different um, from how it's portrayed in old films. Um, his friendship with a Royal Hong Kong police officer, um, who's from the same provincial county, speaks the same dialect here. It's played by Felix Wong. Um, uh, that's kind of done, uh, in, in the same manner. He's this sort of very upright, upstanding, uh, cop and has difficulty accepting, uh, Ho's friendship, um, as, as a criminal. I found the movie strikingly funny at times. I didn't expect it to be quite as funny as it actually is, um, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Um, but there's quite a bit of intentional humor throughout, much more so than I had expected. I thought this was going to be pretty much straight-up triad action drama. Um, the attempt to utilize Kowloon Wald, Wald City as a locale, too. Interesting, again, as Kevin mentioned, they do get some things wrong, um, this was something that really didn't play a a big role in the older films. So it's interesting that they kind of switched to that here, at least in terms of the visuals. Um, they, they're, they're, I think there's mention of it, but they don't actually show a lot of it here. Um, there's sets, there's reconstruction, and there's some computer graphics used to, to sort of, you know, reimagine and, and, and bring this place back to life. And this has been something that's been done... Um, Elsewhere, too, I think uh, the TVB drama called A Fist Within Four Walls from a few years back, um, one or two years back, uh, was also focused on that. So there's been some revitalization of um, Kowloon Walled City as a locale of interest for popular culture. Uh, it Man Final Fight also has a sequence uh, dealing with Kowloon Walled City uh, as well. So, you know, those aspects are fine. The, the narrative changes are fine. Um, the, the death of a character that happens um, in relation to Ho. As I said, his relationship with Rock is different. There's an end showdown where things kind of get really over the top. Kevin mentioned there's a kind of an almost Infernal Affairs-esque character reveal that happens. Um, so they're really kind of just pulling from a lot of different films um, that have been done before and perhaps use these elements in a better manner before, and they just kind of pack them in here. Um, but the real bad guys, of course, uh, as Kevin mentions, are the that is levied on the British, particularly in the form of uh, British Chief uh, Inspector Hunt, played by, um, I think it's a Scottish actor named uh, Brian Larkin, who is basically just going over the top here in a Mr. Twister, It Man 2 style manner, because that's <laughs> what he's being asked to do. And, and you know, he's being asked to go over the top and shouting and, um, you know, 
being used to solidify the portrayal of the British in charge, corrupt, bad, evil people. Um, and, the, you know, in terms of, of sort of a revisionist history, this isn't the first film to do that. Um, you can look to, I think, Echoes of the Rainbow also had um, small, small elements of that. There, there, if I remember correctly, there's like a British officer who's a beat cop who's like, you know, out taking bribes. And, you know, so there's these aspects that are kind of amplified um, to... to, to to state that, you know, okay, this is a bad period and there are bad people here like the corrupt Lee Rock and like Crippled Ho, but there are worse people. And so it's, they're just doing their best within an already bad system. And this, I guess, is how it gets play in China, right? This is why, because it kind of does go against the, the traditional rules that bad guys can't get away, but the bad guys kind of did get away, um, when, with regard to these two very real people. But there's a big, you know, there's there's big action elements. There's a big shootout at the end. And, you know, you're watching th this and thinking, all right, this definitely can't be part of the actual history. This this is something that didn't happen. Just like in Lee Rock 2, there's a big shootout at a hospital with, uh, I think, Andy Lau and, and uh, Aaron Kwok. And you're just going, all right, this is where they're really taking, you know, narrative embellishment away from... Uh, you know the, the the facts behind these characters um, as real people, and that's fine. It, that, that you know they're trying to make a property that is entertaining for an audience, and so they're you know it's not a true biopic in that sense. So it is what it is. Overall, I enjoyed it. It's definitely far from a perfect film, but I thought it was entertaining and an interesting callback to those semi-historical films of, of the '90s. Um, there is a mid-credit scene to stay for two which uh, kind of brings things up to speed a bit more so than the 90s films because um, in 90, by 91, when these films had aired, um, these characters were still, their, their story was still a little bit untold. Um, and so we get a little bit more of, and, and now for the rest of the story, with uh, the mid-credit scene at the end of this film. How much of that is... Again, more of a sort of narrative embellishment, if it really happened or not, who can say. But it does give us a little bit further of what happened to these characters. If this film is not something that's coming to a theater near you, and you're going to have to wait for video to check it out in the interim, um, I would definitely recommend you go back and look at some of the 90s films. I think um, at least the three big ones have gotten Blu-ray re-releases and, and DVD remaster releases, and they're still fairly available and that is um, to be number one from 1991. That film did uh, re really well, I think, for the time period. It was like Hong Kong, 38 million. And then later that same year, you had um, the two Lee Rock films coming out pretty much sequentially. Lee Rock 1, I think, the first month, and Lee Rock 2 the second month. Um, fairly big successes as well. Not quite as big as to be number one, um, but still... Um, you know, uh, solid movies, uh, especially with Andy Lau um, in the lead role, and still entertaining. I th think they still hold up pretty well today. There is a additional spin-off film that uh, so Lawrence Lau, as Kevin was talking about, to um, he's the director of um, Dealer Healer. Uh, he directed the two Lee Rock films, and he also directed a spin-off film that came out a year later called Arrest the Restless which has Paul Chun reprising his role. It credits Andy Lau, but Andy Lau's not really in it. He's, they, they, they use some additional footage from Lee Rock. Watch it for Paul Chun and for Leslie, Leslie Chun. Um, and uh, not quite as good as the Lee Rock films, but still uh, entertaining if, if you want to sort of round out uh, the films of this era. Availability for the first three is, like I said, still pretty good. I'm not sure Arrest the Restless. That didn't get any re-release as far as I know, but you might be able to find that. Um, secondhand out there somewhere in the internets. Um, but if you're a Donnie fan, if you're an Andy fan, I thought the two of them worked fairly well together. It is a Wang Jing movie. Um, it does feel like a Wang Jing movie at times, but I think it's a fair assessment to say he tried a little bit more than, than usual. Uh, I found it to be more entertaining than, say, 
the any of the From Vegas to Macau films, um, and I'd probably want to watch this again, uh, much more so than I'd want to watch one of those again. So you can take that for what it's worth. But if you're definitely an Andy fan or a Donnie fan or a fan of both, um, you're going to want to see this and, and see them together on screen. Have you seen all the old films, Kevin? No. Um, I I might have watched Lee Rock when I was a kid, maybe. I don't know, because I was still in Hong Kong at the time, and I'm not sure if I I saw glimpses of them or something. I have maybe. But no, I, I it's my first time really touched you know, I haven't seen, at least in my memory, I haven't seen, you know, um, To Be Number One or the Lee Rock films, which I guess those are, which, by the way, I think To Be Lee Rock was produced by Wong Jing as well, right? Yes. Yeah. He um, he, he produced, I don't, I don't know if he, I don't remember if he worked on the script or not, but he was involved with those. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, so, I mean, I, it, it, it's an interesting case of, seeing Andy more than anything for me seeing Andy in the role again although again he's he's playing it very differently this time out than I think um, the first times but um, you know if I had to pick if I had to say alright there's a Lee, if you're, if you're going to watch a Lee Rock film watch this one or watch Lee Rock 1 and 2 I'd probably point people back to Lee Rock 1 and 2 um, just because it's I think it's the storytelling is a bit more interesting for the era no, I think I think that Wang Jing is a very smart businessman, and he has been his entire career in mainland China has been about recycling, you know, old things that you know that worked in Hong Kong before, of course, in the eighties and nineties. And you know, the thing about the mainland Chinese audience is that their nostalgia for or their idea of Hong Kong cinema was really formed or by what they seen in the nineties and the eighties. So he knows that if people want to go see a Hong Kong film with Andy Lau and Donnie Yen, they what kind of topic they're looking for. So he makes a triad film. He knows they're looking for something that looks like it's come straight out of the eighties and the nineties. So he's clearly going back to this well, you know, because he thinks the idea would 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 work well in Chinese audience, and and he keeps coasting on this whole nostalgia factor, and then um, it's worked. I mean, the film has been an immense success. Um, in China, and um, it's actually becoming quite a hit in Hong Kong. As I just checked the box office, it's about to beat Blade Runner at the box office. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, check it out if you get a chance. If you'd like to let us know your thoughts, you can always drop us a line uh, on the website or on Facebook. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily LoveHKFilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to be part of the show, please get in touch with us at our website. That is concast.com. You can find us over on Twitter at concast. You can email us eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can find us over at Facebook at East S West S. As always, the man of the moment, Mr. Kevin Ma, I urge you to follow him and all that he's doing. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Uh, of course, I have a website, Asia in Cinema. Uh, that's www.asiaincinema.com. Uh, in addition to all these, you know, festival and awards news, of course, I'll be back in Tokyo this year, so I'll be doing some coverage because I have a press pass, and that's really what I have to do to earn that press pass. Um, and of course, I'll be going to the Golden Horse Film Festival, which I might not be covering. I might just be watching a lot of films. But as I said earlier, we'll be doing a live blog, so things are picking up again, even though I'm still kind of busy with, with work. Um, so look look for that. And of, of course, there are some stories that don't end up on the site that I will post on www. I'm sorry, the Facebook page of Asian Cinema. So that's www.facebook.com slash Asian Cinema or on Twitter, twitter.com slash, you know, Asian Cinema and a lot of that. Uh, you can read my work on Cathay Pacific and Cathay Dragon Airlines um, Discovery and Silk Road magazines. I'm the entertainment editor of those magazines. So you can see uh, my work in the entertainment section. Um, it's October, and right now I'm, we have some pieces about – I have a piece about Baby Driver 
and the films of Edgar Wright, um, as well as a um, a piece on what did I do for World Film Club. Uh, a piece on documentary, a Taiwan documentary named Small Talk, which is an excellent, excellent film, by the way, um, that you should all check out if you're flying on Cathay Pacific uh, this month. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, at the Golden Rock. And you can email me at Kevin at Asia and Cinema.com. And I think we want to throw a shout out to um, a reader. We've, of course, he's written to us about Toronto Film Festival before and he's giving us a very very long rundown of the films he's seen um, and I'm still trying to go through the reviews but yeah I just want to throw a shout out uh, to him and uh, thanks for actually writing in and giving us uh, your thoughts about those films yes indeed um, and that would be I think Peter in Canada right yes that's right so our next show, we're going to be talking about uh, the new Blade Runner, right? Which you've seen and I've not yet seen, but we'll hopefully see in the coming days. And we'll be able to sit down and gab a little bit about that. So, Yeah, Paul, sometimes we just got to cover the indie films, you know, the small indie films yeah. that no one ever talks about. The, the, the tiny oh, films, yeah. you know. Um, so all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying, don't go chasing dragons, chase unicorns instead. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Time.